to you from the San Antonio Public Library. We are also supported by the San Antonio Public Library Foundation. Uh, I am Liz. I work here at Sapple and I am with Tim who is my awesome co-host and today we are going to talk about Gods of Jade and Shadow by Sylvia Moreno Garcia. But before we get into that, uh, we do want to disclaim that this is an adult podcast, so that doesn't mean we're going to be cussing or anything, but we will be covering some adult themes and topics, so if you have little ears around you or you yourself have sensitive ears, just be aware that this could stray into some darker themes and topics, so if you want to stop listening, you're more than welcome to. So, Tim, you want to introduce God of Jade and Shadow? So, Yes. I wanted to name this episode The Haunted Splinter, but now I think I might call it Family Dysfunction. <laughs> yes. We'll, we'll let the listeners decide. Yes, because it could go both ways. I like Haunted Splinter, but it Excellent. could go. So um, the main character is Cassiopeia Tun, who is sort of the black sheep of her family. Her family is the wealthiest family in a small town in Yucatan. Mm -hmm. And uh, she basically is, is treated like a slave amongst her own family. And she, she says her outlook is that women were meant to bear the brunt of inquiries because they descended from Eve, who had been weak and sinned, eating from the juicy forbidden apple. That's a direct quote from the book, page seven. What edition, sir? First edition. Okay. <laughs> Hardcover. Hardcover? Okay. No, that's a lie. It's Kindle format. I'm looking at Kindle notes right here. That could be any page then. Just disregard people. Just disregard. Okay. Um, anyway, so she's, she's sort of, you know, mistreated, uh, abused by, by her family. And uh, she is left behind one day when the family makes its annual pilgrimage to one of the cenotes. I don't know if people know what that is, but there are like these caves with freshwater pools in them mm -hmm. that the uh, Mayans used to use to throw their decapitated bodies into, along with other gems and offerings. <laughs> but in this case, it is thought to be a place of healing for the grandfather. So he goes on a, was it yearly or monthly? I think it's yearly. I don't remember. It happens regularly. Um, and so he goes to basically like, like how Europeans would like go south to get fresh air. He goes to this cenote to like take a bath in the water and take advantage of its supposed healing properties. Like Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt went to the Sulphur Springs. And... Exactly. So it's kind of like that that idea. And Cassiopeia, Cassiopeia gets left behind. And she's just like, you know what? They tell me never to go into this chest, but they've just done her wrong one too many. So she's like, I'm going to go into this chest. And so she does. Right. She's referring to a chest that her grandfather keeps. Uh, and, you know, so sometimes it's a good idea to open locked boxes, but 
I don't know if it's a good idea to open a lockbox that has a picture of a decapitated dude on it. I mean, I don't know. I find that intriguing. I don't want to know if there's a head in there <laughs> in like a morbid, macabre, curious way. Well, <laughs> you'd be in luck if you were Cassiopeia Toon because when she opens that, there is in fact a head. Like there is a also, whole body. Like there's also a fibula and a tibia. A tibia and a radius and an ulna. But apparently no pinky finger. So yeah, she opens the, the chest in her grandfather's room and out spill a bunch of bones and she tries to pick them up and she gets a bone splinter in her hand, which I refer to as the famous haunted splinter. And as she starts to bleed on the floor and becomes worried about leaving evidence behind, a naked man materializes in front of her. Yes. And this is none other than uh, Hunkame, the Lord of Shadows. And please forgive us if we pronounce things wrong because I am not a native Spanish speaker. And, uh, and though I am Hispanic, neither am I. I'm Mexican, so thin, I'm a potato. Right, and so Hunkame is the uh, the rightful ruler of Chibaba, which is the Mayan city of the dead or Mayan kingdom of the dead, and this would make him a Mayan death god. And uh, he informs her that uh, his brother Vukukame, I may be pronouncing that wrong, I suspect I am, tricked him and imprisoned him and took his left eye, his left ear, and his index finger. I said it was a pinky, but no, it was an index finger. And randomly, a jade necklace. What, no pinky toe? Nope, no pinky toe. We want a finger. So, Hunkame, in order to uh, reassume his throne, uh, must keep Cassiopeia next to him because the splinter that is lodged in her, in her index finger is what is giving him life. He's basically leeching life away from her. Yeah. And so he must travel uh, throughout the Yucatan and reassemble himself, which means he needs to uh, capture, reclaim his eye, his ear, his index finger, and his jade necklace. And this starts a, uh, a travel that is very similar to the travel that Shadow goes through in American Gods. By Neil Gaiman. By Neil Gaiman, yeah. As uh, Hunkame seeks to obtain these missing parts of his body. Yeah. And in the review, I read about this book because it came out in 2018, 2019? Fairly recently, but not like super recently. 2019. 2019. So this is a, a review found on NPR by Arkady Martin. And he he wrote, at the end of a quest or a fairy tale, the hero must make a choice. So I don't want to like go further than that, but the fact that he called it a quest, you know, it just kind of, it showed that this story follows like a tradition of like the quest tale of like, we have our hero, in this case, our heroine, and she's like thrown into this stuff. And then she, she like goes on this adventure and, and, and all that. And I just thought it was interesting how he kind of, I just thought it was interesting that they brought that up. But in, like, American Gods does the same thing. Yeah. I, I find also, like, a similarity in, with American Gods in um, the fact that it uh, that says that the prayer, prayers and offerings of the morals feed the gods. Um, 
and that the imagination of mortals shaped the gods, carving their faces and their myriad forms, just as water molds the stone in its path. Sort of, that's also a, a concept that you see in, in other uh, books about the interaction between humans and the gods as well. Like the gods cannot survive without human adoration. Right. Um, so yeah, the mythical aspects of this book I, I thought were really interesting in that we don't see a lot of adult fiction with Mayan mythology, at least not in like a mainstream way that this book is. Because like, I think this book was, is very mainstream and it was advertised as like a very mainstream book. So it was cool to see like the Mayan mythology take place and also really cool to see a 1920s Yucatan, Mexico, and California because they, yeah, they travel up through Mexico. They like stop in Mexico City and then they think their final destination is in California. In Baja, California. Baja, California. And this is because Vukub Kame, traditionally through Hunkame, you learn that the Yucatan is sort of their home and that's where they have the most power. They're, they're closest to their source of power there. Yeah, but like Fukukame has like, plans to expand this power. And so he's found another well of power in, in Baja, California, where he's built another temple that's really a resort that people go and visit. Yeah, because he's a very typical antagonist in the sense that like he has power and like he has a Roman domain but he wants more which not to get too philosophical but this just popped into my head makes him very very human I think and so I'll segue that into this into or back to our point about like how Hunkame is leeching the life from Cassiopeia on their journey to to Baja California and ultimately to um to reclaim his throne uh because as he is leeching life from her just to sustain himself in like a physical body he's also becoming more human um so and and there are many scenes throughout the book like where hunkame is just like i have no idea what these feelings are you're talking about i'm a god this doesn't matter to me but then as the book goes on he has like those moments where he's just like I have feelings, and what do I do with this? Right, like <laughs> he he giggles a little bit, and then he and, and then it scares him, and so he stops. Yes, he's like, "What? What was that? What was that? I don't know what to do with this." Um, so like that juxtaposition of of like immortal indifference versus like the wide array of feelings and emotions that humans feel. I feel like that was like a common theme throughout the book. Um, but the fact that Vacuum Kame just wants more power, I just thought, again, like that's very human of him, which I think is just ironic. But you know, that's that's something that's always in God tales. Um, they ask one of the characters, and I can't remember which one it is, if it, if it was the demon, I can't even remember his name now. Um, why why they're helping them and 
what they say about uh, Vukokame is that he desires more power, more than he's ever tasted, more than we were ever meant to have. Incense is not enough for him. He'll burn the land, the forests, and swallow the smoke that rises from it. And that's sort of a very common uh, bad guy theme. You hear you heard that in Game of Thrones too. The uh, much maligned HBO series and George R. R. Martin series that is it. still not finished. It has earned it. Um, but but they say that of uh, Littlefinger that he he would rather burn down the land and be king of the ashes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, than than be nobody. Yeah. Which I and again so like. I'm just like tying, I'm just like connecting threads in my head even as we're speaking. Because I mean, this book has a lot you can you can talk about. Like you can talk about the characters, you can talk about the setting, you can talk about the mythology aspects of it. But in this sense of like wanting to make a name for yourself, it kind of goes hand in hand with that, with like the quest narrative. Because like in, in old literature, like Beowulf, um, which of course I feel like that's a pretty iconic one, so everybody will kind of know what I mean by that. Um, like you know, the main thing is like honor and knowing and having like history, remember your name and never being forgotten and all this stuff. And it's like it's such a driving force for for people that they do like these terrible things, and it drove Vacuum Kame to not only like dismember his brother and basically like scatter him all over like Southern America but also to like hurt himself because in order to kill him he had to hold iron and in this book it iron hurts these gods like it is like the one substance that can that can hurt them and so like he also physically hurts himself in this futile quest because he like he wants to go back to the way it was before of like immense power when people were like yeah sacrificing people like chopping heads off like it was out of fashion but now it's like yeah i think it was the demon who who mentioned that about like he just wants more power but it's there's just like it's not that's not the world now it, it may have been Hunkami too he said because he said he wants more than we were ever meant to have mm-hmm. like um, Hunkami. yeah Hunkami is very aware that like we are gods, we exist because people do still believe in us, though the world has changed, and, like, because they are on, like, a well of power, so to speak, but he also realizes that, like, you know, this isn't the world that we were born, if born, I'm doing air quotes, born into, (laughs) but, so I just thought, like, it's, it's, it's interesting how uh, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, like, took, like, a very classic, structure and gave it new depth and new characters and new points of view and a new setting and so it was cool to see that and and i do like it's a cast of characters that you don't get in in mainstream literature a lot yeah um you wanted to talk about the hero twins oh my gosh tell us about the hero twins Oh my gosh, I had to stop reading and like look around and just make weird animalistic noises because I was just so thrown by this. But so we learn about like other myths, like other Maya myths within the book. And we learn about the hero twins who apparently 
were born of a virgin who got impregnated by the spit of a severed head. Interesting. You know what that reminds me of? <laughs> it reminds me of the tale of Loki. <laughs> and the spider horse. The spider. Who like comes up with these things? Yes. Tell us about Loki and the spider horse. So, and, and I vouch nothing for the accuracy of the story. Of course, I wasn't around to witness it. And this comes from an, art, an article on the site that's called All That's Interesting. It's six of the craziest and most terrifying gods ever described. And so Loki, of course, is a trickster god. And... Loki cons his way into becoming a god amongst the North God, Norse gods because he's the son of two giants. And in typical government fashion, Asgard is building a new palace and runs out of money to complete the building project. Okay. So Loki talks... Odin in. He's like, hey, Odin, you know, I know this really great giant contractor, and uh, he can build you a wall like nobody else. He can, you know, he will finish your palace for you. And the Asgardians are like, but we don't have money. And Loki says, that's okay, because I'll tell you what we're going to do. We will set him a time frame that he can't possibly live up to and then we won't have to pay him. And so Odin's like, well, okay, I guess that might work. And so Loki goes and talks to the giant. The giant says, yes, I want X amount of dollars. And I also want Freya as payment. And Loki's like, okay, sure, no problem. And Odin's <laughs> like, wait, what? Like, who, whoa, 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 who told you you could <laughs> offer a payment to this guy? And Loki's like, nah, just totally don't worry about it. Like, I got this, bro. I got it. But then <laughs> the giant starts work on building the palace in Asgard, and he's keeping up with his time schedule, and Loki's starting to sweat. But the way that the giant keeps up is because he has this magical thoroughbred horse, and the horse can haul incredible amounts of stone and it makes the giant's life so much easier. So Loki's like, okay, I gotta, I have to take a more active role in disrupting his time <laughs> frame here. And so Loki transforms himself. I don't know how he does that when he's not a god, but he transforms himself into a barren heat and this is sufficient to distract the other horse. And Loki and this magnificent giant horse have a have a a, a child together that's an eight-legged spider horse. Which makes no sense. They were both horses. I, why is why why why? Just a lot of why. Don't don't ask me why. Don't ask me why. I don't know. Genetic experimentation. Maybe it, there was something nuclear there that caused the chromosomes to mutate. So not okay. So I'm obviously because of the Marvel films. Like I'm sure many of us have gotten very obsessed with like Norse mythology because Thor and Loki from 
of popular Marvel films. But in other fiction that I read where Loki plays a central character, that dude is always popping out weird babies. I'm just going to leave it at that. He can never seem to have normal looking or sounding children. So we'll just, yes, Loki's weird. But in a similar vein to Loki as being a trickster god, I also want to talk about another trickster god. Um, he doesn't have a very distinct name because it is a Native American god. It's the coyote god. So in Native American uh, folklore history, the coyote is typically seen as a trickster god. So he's, I've seen him just <laughs> described in other books as like this kind of like 1920s gangster type character, which was funny to visualize. Um, but he, similar to Loki, well no, different from Loki, um, the coyote always seems to have good intentions towards people, not so much gods. So that's a difference between them. So I found this one really interesting tell um, on, it's called iHawaii.net, and it's believed to be of Cherokee origin. I could be totally wrong. There was even a question mark on the site. So if somebody knows the actual origin, by all means, hit me with some accuracy. Um, but in this story, the coyote um, helps the people, which is just like humans, people, um, to survive winter because, you know, everything's great and dandy during summer and spring, but then in winter, of course, like there's, there's no way for them to keep warm because they have not discovered fire at this time. And so the coyote feels sorry for these people, and he's like, I feel like I can do something to help them. And he does. So he knew of these fire beings that guarded fire, like the power of fire. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to sneak in there and I'm going to like steal the fire. So whenever I heard this, my first thought was immediately, this is very similar to Prometheus and Zeus and how Prometheus took fire from Hephaestus, I think, and gave it to, he to people. And then Zeus got mad and had a bird eats its liver daily. Um, anyways, Coyote is much smaller, sm smaller and smarter, so he transforms himself into a coyote, sneaks onto the mountain where these fire beings are guarding the fire, and steals a branch from it and carries the fire. <laughs> um, and then he also asks the people, meaning in this case the people being the other gods, the other deities, to be like, hey, help me do this because like we need these people to live. <laughs> so he gets the stick of fire and he runs away. Um, but his one of the fire beings, the the finger touches the tip of the tail, and that was enough to turn the hairs white, and that is why coyote's tip tail tips are still white. But he manages to get the fire away, and he, where is it? Oh, yes. So then the, the, the people, mean the, the deities, flung the fire onto wood. Wood with a capital W. So, and wood swallowed it. So I thought this was a really interesting way to explain why fire can come from wood, because it's saying that like this power was thrown into the wood and wood somehow like ate it 
and ingested it. And that's how fire, how you get fire out of wood now. And so, so whenever a piece of wood is on fire, it's just a bit gassy? Or yes, what? it's just a bit gassy. It's indigestion? Yes. But I just thought that was kind of an interesting way to, to explain like a very common phenomenon and like something so important to Native, to life everywhere yeah to life everywhere um and it, the story also goes into explaining like why certain animals have like certain markings on them uh so it's like it's saying the the squirrel oh yeah so the squirrel saw the fire falling so this is a quote the squirrel saw the fire falling and caught it putting and caught it putting on her back and fleeing away through the treetops the fire scorched her back so painfully that her tail curled up and back Squirrel's tail still do that till today. Then the squirrel threw it to the chipmunk, and chattering with fear, the chipmunk stood still as if rooted until the fire beings were almost upon her. Then she turned to run, and a being clawed at her, tearing down the length of her back and leaving three stripes that are still there to be seen today. And then one of the beings pursued a frog, but the frog gave a mighty leap and tore himself free, leaving his tail behind, which is why frogs no longer have tails to this day. So this story also went into a lot of like explanation as to why animals, certain animals look the way they do, which I just thought was very, very fun and enlightening. That, that is funny. A lot of this book has to, um, returning to the gods of Jade and Shadow, <laughs> since we've now um, diverted and talked about uh, deities and other cultures. Yes. Um, a lot of this book has to do with family issues because Fuku Kame and Hun Kame are brothers. They're twins. They're, they're twin brothers and they're like polar opposites. Um, Cassiopeia has the same sort of dynamic with her cousin Martin. They're, they're yeah. polar opposites. Martin acts aggressive and tough but it's because he's afraid. He's afraid and he also it, he's a very typical example of like I, my masculinity is feeling attacked. I must do something mean to show I am masculine. Right. And there's one part that where he's thinking about Cassiopeia that's really telling in that. And he says that Martin had the nagging suspicion that as a child, his cousin had feared nothing and that she still feared nothing now. And he thought this was unnatural, especially for a girl. Mm -hmm. Um, but you do have this concept of the female and the power of the female. Yes. You know, the, the females bearing the brunt of inequity because of mm -hmm. being from the apple. The fact that she had no fear being very unnatural. Cassiopeia says that, you know, I opened the chest. I wasn't a princess in the tower. Uh, and yet at the same time, you have this, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Extebe, who was a mortal woman and then came back as this vengeful, vengeful spirit yeah. um, who basically sustained herself by leading men to their death through their... Um, Desire for her? Libido, yeah. Uh, using their libido against them. And then... Uh, Returning to Cassiopeia, it says also that she was, after all, a maiden, and that there's power in the symbol of the maiden. 
woman and rebirth and the restoration of something lost. These are all direct quotes from the book in a lot of cases. A vessel, a conduit through which everything is made anew. And Which I'm not going to lie. I, I tend to read things in a feminist light because I think that's what I tended to write. The, that's the literature perspective I would write in my undergrad. So I was definitely like coming at this book from a, from a more feminist perspective. And, and yeah, that, that part definitely kind of, I don't want to, I don't know if chafed's the right word, but it definitely made me like do a double take and like reread it again and be like, okay, see, this is another example of like where like the female is demeaned, but also holds so much weight and importance in the society. And so it's just, it's a, interesting simultaneously demeaned and exalted yeah exactly because i mean cassiopeia the fact that she's a maiden plays such an integral role to or is one of the reasons i think hunkame was eventually spoiler successful <laughs> in getting his throne back because she was a maiden who sacrificed herself at the end of this like quest journey i'm thinking like yes the book all together but also like just at the very end like where she has to walk the black road to get to the was it the castle she has to get to the to the fortress of Chibalba or right okay i couldn't remember if she had to make it to a tree or a castle she made it to the tree but but she needed to get to the castle but and i thought i was thinking to myself like couldn't she just commit suicide and she would appear there magically. I mean, oh, I didn't really think about that. I, at, at the very start, uh, that was my one of my earlier thoughts on it. But but sacrifice ha plays a big role in this too. Um, that was how Vukukame was able to uh, take the throne from Kunkame was sacrifice. He had to allow himself to be burned by the by the iron, then you have uh, the idea of Cassiopeia sacrificing a drop of blood for information on where to obtain uh, Hunkame's ear, I believe. I don't remember which body part it was. Yeah, it was one of his body parts, ear, finger. Yeah. They all look the same. You know, it's missing. We just wanted to find it. It was important. But then there's also this idea that blood is the oldest coin of uh, blood remains and and you know of course ultimately she sacrifices herself um, my favorite quote of the book is from page 298 as must be the snake said looking prim snakes after all have a great sense of decorum and order he has snake pets I am a fan of snakes they're very cute and um, if you wanted to sum the book up nicely uh, uh, in terms of the relationships of dysfunctional families, the last quote that I highlighted is, the nature of hate is mysterious. It can gnaw at the heart for an eon and the, then depart when one expected it to remain as immobile as a mountain, but even mountains erode. That's, that is a really good quote that sums up a lot of the book. I guess one other thing I want to point out before we before we finish is also the romance bit because i was very wary of the romance 
because I saw it coming from a mile away and I was like, oh no. Um, but, but I was pleasantly surprised that it was very mild and very much like a slow burn and not the point of the story, which I appreciated 100% because Cassiopeia, I think Moreno Garcia did a fantastic job of balancing like the typical feminine traits we see in female characters and also giving her more more guts and more nerve and also more like what is it steadfastness steady no level-headedness there you go level-headedness um but i'm not gonna lie i cried at the i didn't cry i yeah i didn't think so i cried i cried with him coming one and they were just like well i'm a god again so you know i'm not gonna care anymore it's just like okay this is fine don't write text email or fax yeah because i'm not gonna care <laughs> and it's just like this is fine it's okay i knew this was gonna happen heartbroken but you know it's fine it's fine, it's fine. um so i think i think we have run the course on this. We're recording this from my office. And yes. <laughs> so I'm wondering how many times the custodian's going to walk by with her, her loud cart of cleaning materials. Yes. Maybe it'll be able to be heard on there. And we tried to record this from home yesterday, but Boy Scout that I am, I didn't have the Zoom app and my internet wasn't working great. And so I kept fading in and out. And then I hadn't reviewed my notes either. And Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we our pets were going, my pets more specifically, were letting their presence be known because apparently I was not attending to their needs fast enough. I swear my dog's a cat. And I had an Amazon delivery that happened that caused my dogs to bark too. Which then caused my dogs to bark because <laughs> they heard his dog barking through, our, through my computer. But... Um, uh, but we thank everybody for listening. Yes. And we'd like you to, if you want to view what our suggested reads are, our reviews, uh, look at our reviews. You can look at our website on Goodreads. Uh, that's Sap Will Escape the Earth. And also, if you want to write us stories, suggestions, random thoughts, interesting sci-fi uh, geek culture information, you can send that to us at Sapple Escape the Earth at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, awesome. feel, free to, feel free to correct us if we got our mythology wrong. Yeah, because, and at the end of this book, I forgot what the text was that Moreno Garcia got most of, like, or did most of her research from, but there is a specific text that she pulled from to inform this story. So there I goes not... the card again. <laughs> Yes, and yep, I now I'm noticing it. Yes, but um, but yeah, so yeah, if you are knowledgeable on this topic, please share with us accurate info, resources. We would love to hear it. Also, if you can, drop us a rate, review, and a subscribe on if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us. We're gonna try getting these out regularly. Yes. And be more professional about it. I mean, I'm not. I'm not gonna promise that. <laughs> Neither am I. 
at all. That's no. No. All right. Have a good night. Good day. Whatever time you're listening. Yes. Have a good rest of the. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever this is. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Escapes the Escape the Escape the